For the next two weeks, I thought we would look at biblical calls. We've got, as we're going to hear a bit in a little while, uh, this week at our presbytery meeting, Stacy's call to be a uh, installed associate pastor will be confirmed. We've got Claire Berry by your action and the good work of the APNC coming soon. But call in Scripture is not just for ministers or elders or deacons. There's a call to each of us in our life. So this morning, we're going to look at that through the first chapter of John. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus said to them, come and see. They came, and they saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see the word of the Lord. What the world expects of Christians is that they should speak out loud and clear, that they should voice their convictions in such a way that not even the slightest doubt could arise in the heart of the simplest person and more, that they should get away from words and abstractions and confront in their deeds the blood-stained face of history. The existentialist writer Albert Camus wrote that just shortly before he died in an auto accident in 1960, just three years after receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature. Camus had been antagonistic to Christianity throughout his whole life because he could not reconcile faith in God with the pain and the suffering he had witnessed in his life and in the world. Yet apparently, Camus was contemplating being baptized just before he died. We'll never know whether Camus ever even read the first chapter of John, but if he did, he would have found words that echoed his emerging 
conversion. The first three sentences Jesus utters in the Gospel of John are, what are you looking for? Come and see, follow me. What are you looking for? Come and see, follow me. Jesus did not begin his ministry proclaiming the good news with a reading list, a study guide, a lecture, an equation, a formula. He did not invite people to go to seminary or enroll in a year-long Bible study course or, in, or sign up for any volunteering at church or to craft one's own spiritual quest. He simply invited people to come and see exploration about who Jesus is and what he means never ever happens in a vacuum, not in the first century and not today. It happens when we experience a life with God lived out in real time, in real places like our time and like our places. It happens when we practice faith, giving thanks, sharing good news, meeting needs, and as Jesus did, speaking truth to power. God can get tiny if we're not careful. Father Fred, Greg Boyle has said, God can get tiny if we're not careful. In his work with gang members in Los Angeles, Father Boyle was once asked when he can sense young men and women who are so trapped and so much in a downward spiral, when can he tell that they're beginning to see some light in their lives? When they're able to give thanks, Boyle said, when we see a glimpse of gratitude somewhere in their lives, none of us can live without something bigger than ourselves to give ourselves to. Theologian Karl Rahner once said, if Western Christianity does not rediscover faith rooted in mystery and thankfulness, we might as well close the doors of every church. Unless we experience a life of praise and a life of thanksgiving, you and I are going to keep coming up empty or we'll just chase the next shiny object. When Jesus beckoned people to come and see, this is what he was asking and this is what he was expecting, that we would experience something in the depth of the love and presence of God. Every year, the Archbishop of Canterbury commissions a book for the Anglican Church to be read by everyone during Lent. A few years ago, Ruth Burroughs, known as Sister Rachel in her Carmelite community, was asked to write a book on how you know God. She started with the questions, what is faith? What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to lack faith? Then she wrote, faith is a profound mystery. We can never try to explain it. If we chase the explanation, we'll always miss. Faith is never a mere intellectual assent. It always involves our commitment. It's always an action, more a verb than a noun. Faith cannot be just one facet of a particular part of a life. It's got to be our whole life. Many people think they have no faith because they don't feel anything, they do not realize that they must take the risk of believing, of committing themselves, of setting themselves out to live out commitment. 
Never mind that they continue to feel that they don't believe. Under cover of being authentic, we can spend our lives waiting for a kind of certainty we'll never have. There's no replacement in your life or mine for come and see at the foundation of our faith. During the potato famine in Ireland, the government organized unemployed workers to build roads to both give them something to do and to help them out. The workers did an extraordinarily bad job of building those roads. They did it with little enthusiasm until the government finally took them all aside and explained to them why the roads were important, how they would help people, and then they gathered nearby villagers to say thank you to the workers and have them testify what difference those roads would make. After this, the work improved dramatically because now it had meaning. It was fueled by thankfulness. Nobody wants to build a road to nowhere, not even a church. You have to come and see. The thing is, a thankful life cannot be contained. Charles Hodge was a 19th century Reformed theologian who is a fierce opponent of theological liberalism. Hodge found his, the theology of Frederick Schleiermacher so wrong, so distasteful, so off the rails that Hodge wrote 15 no-margin, single-space, tiny-type pages rigorously critiquing Schleiermacher's ideas and, and explaining how Schleiermacher was completely wrong. Yet in a footnote at the end of Hodge's long critique, he noted that it was Schleiermacher's personal practice to gather his children around the family piano after dinner to sing praises to the Lord Jesus. Hodge said he was confident that Schleiermacher, who had died just shortly before this 15-page critique was published, was now singing praises with the Lord Jesus face to face. When we follow Jesus' invitation to come and see, it's impossible to see people as categories or souls as opponents. There's no substitute for come and see. In the sanctuary of the church I used to serve in downtown Denver, carved on the inside of the pulpit, right here, so that the, the last thing the preacher would see before she or he would get up to preach was carved a phrase from John chapter 12, sir, we would see Jesus. Obviously carved, alas, when all preachers were sirs. It stared at my colleague Amy and me every time we got up to preach. I learned that that was a popular thing to carve in pulpits at the turn of the last century. Sir, we would see Jesus. A minister, a friend of mine, was touring Scotland during that time and one day went into a magnificently beautiful Scottish cathedral as it happened, he was the only person there. He wandered around looking at the grandeur of the space, and he made his way up to the chancel area. That particular uh, sanctuary had a winding staircase up to a pulpit perched high above, and as he looked up, he could see a plaque 
right there, right on the inside of the pulpit. And he thought, what could be more magnificent than to stand in that pulpit and see that gorgeous sanctuary and see those words, sir, we would see Jesus. So he climbed up and he, he took a look at the vast expanse, the beauty of the windows and the sanctuary. And then with expectation, he looked down and read those words, remember Edna Bailey. It didn't say, sir, we, it, evidently the pulpit was given by Edna Bailey, and so she got a memorial plaque on the inside of the pulpit. He was so disappointed that it dawned on him. Maybe God was revealing a truth that the only way to see Jesus is to remember Edna Bailey or Jane Doe or Carlos Gomez or Sybil Todd or every other soul in all creation who needs God's good news. You can't see Jesus at work in the world at a distance. Striving for a world of hope and peace, even when you quite see it or name it, then and only then can you experience the presence of the living God at work in the world. Come and see. There's a woman I know who works a full-time job and then works three nights a week on the streets of a major city trying to coax, prod, cajole, beg mentally ill people to come off the street and get help and be sheltered and, and have their issues addressed. It is hard, cold, pressed-to-the-limit kind of work. Most of this thinks she does this because she's such an exemplary Christian. But when someone commented about all the greatness of her commitment, saying that her commitment showed her great faith, she said, great faith, I don't think so. I don't really have that much faith at all. That's, that's the point of why I'm here. I need all the help I can get seeing Jesus understanding Jesus, being with Jesus. So I have to keep very close and keep close very often to those who Jesus kept closest to. That's why I'm here. If I didn't have this place and this work to see Jesus, I reckon I'd never see him. Experiencing Jesus means that we experience a life of thankfulness. It means we share God's good news wherever, however we can. It means we meet needs. You want to see Jesus? Come and see. That's a wonderful invitation that's not dependent on any church or any minister or any program or any sign-up sheet or any particular theology or ideology. It's a free invitation of a God who loves you so much you want to see Jesus. Come, see. You love one, you gotta love them all. You love one, you have to love them all. That was the Reverend Will Campbell's statement of faith. When you and I come and see what Jesus is up to, we soon will experience that particular revelation about all the people, all the people in God's creation. You love one, you gotta love them all. In that one statement, thankfulness and sharing good news and being passionate about meeting needs are all joined together. It's all right in front of us. 
Once a priest in New Jersey phoned Will Campbell. Will Campbell was a legendary Baptist preacher and civil rights crusader in the 60s and 70s. And once a priest in New Jersey phoned Will Campbell saying he wanted to come down south and join with Campbell in his ministry because he felt called to do something important with his life. Where are you now, Campbell asked. I'm in a payphone in Newark, the priest said. Payphones were little glass booths that were on street corners. The priest said, I'm in a payphone in New Jersey. And Campbell said, is it one of those glass booths? Can you see out? Yes, it is, said the puzzled priest. Are there any people out there or are the streets deserted today? Oh, no, there's lots of people here. Well, son, said Campbell, that's your ministry. Go to it. Unlike Albert Camus, who had a lifelong disdain and couldn't quite get to see faith as a reasonable possibility in a world of pain, when Martin Luther King Jr. experienced the suffering of the world, it pushed him deeper into his faith. And King's God, as we well know, was never tiny. His God encompassed every single person who was put on this earth, good, bad, put down, lifted up, oppressed, forgotten, despised, everybody. And King took God's invitation to come and see as a lifelong call, and he truly loved them all, even those who were hardest to love. And meeting needs often meant for King confronting the powers that be for Jesus' sake. On Palm Sunday, 1968, in Washington, D.C., King stepped into the pulpit of the National Cathedral to preach remaining awake through a great revolution. It was the last Sunday sermon of his life. King talked about many things, but what was on his heart that day was the nature and the cost of following Jesus, the nature and the cost of coming and seeing. It is no longer a choice, my friends, King said, between violence and nonviolence, between racism and justice, between death and life. It is either nonviolence or non-existence. We are entering a time of difficult choices. On some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it expedient? And then expedience comes along and asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? It is the conscience formed by God that asks the question, is it right? We shall overcome, King said, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because no lie can lie forever. We shall overcome because truth crushed crushed to earth will rise again and on that day the morning stars will sing together and the children of God will shout for joy. When it comes down to being a provider of God's love, Barbara Brown Taylor has written, there's really only one provider who sends us out with nothing at all and with everything we need. Healing, forgiveness, restoration, resurrection. Those are the only things Christians have to share with the world, which is just as well. 
because that's all the world really needs. In the realm of following Jesus, we come and see. We come and see so that we can follow and go. Go and see. Go and share. Go and serve. Go and give. And go and speak the truth about Jesus who will bind up every wound, your wound, the wounds of those you love and the wounds of this world, who will fill every heart, your heart, and every single person on this earth that feels empty today and will make every crooked place a straight path right into God's heart. What are you looking for today? What are you looking for? Come and see.